Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. Jonathan Haidt has written that we have become, quote, disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. In this episode, Cherie Harder will talk with best-selling authors Andy Crouch and Jonathan Haidt to discuss how we can restore true community amidst the distractions and divisions that our society presents. A person is a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love. Hmm. And one of the really damaging things about our technology is very little of our technology develops all four of hmm. those qualities. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from May of 2022. You can find the full video of that conversation, along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. The Genesis story of the Tower of Babel opens with a scene of resourceful people united by a common language, collaborating on an ambitious enterprise. It ends just a few verses later with utter confusion and fragmentation, cooperation frustrated, plans abandoned, and people divided. It's the metaphor that one of our guests today used to describe the effects of social media on our country and our fellow citizens, where, in his words, something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. It's the story of the fragmentation of everything. And why, he claims, the past 10 years of American life have been, in his words, uniquely stupid. But the effects of social media and many of the broader imperatives of technology in general are not limited to distorting and corroding the civic structures defining and uniting us as a people, our other guests has argued, but also what defines and defends our very personhood. Persons are made in the image of God to flourish and being known and being loved are now withering in mass from alienation and loneliness, which somehow spiked just as media became social, our technologies personal, and our machines learned to recognize our faces. So what hope is there in reversing the structural stupidity constructed by our devices remastering the machines that warp us and wound our children and damage our democracy. How might we approach rebuilding community and reclaiming relationship in a technological world? It's hard to imagine a deeper or more important question to wrestle with, or two people who have done such wrestling with more expertise, insight, and wisdom than our guest today, Jonathan Haidt and Andy Crouch. Jonathan is a social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at NYU's Stern School of Business. In addition to his numerous scholarly uh, publications, he's the author of three major books, two of which became New York Times bestsellers, including The Happiness Hypothesis, The Coddling of the American Mind, and The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. 
He's been named a top 100 global thinker by Foreign Policy Magazine, one of the world's 65 best thinkers of the year by Prospect Magazine, and his four TED Talks have been viewed by more than 7 million times. He's also the author of the much discussed and fascinating cover article in the current issue of The Atlantic, After Battle, How Social Media Dissolved the Mortar of Society and Made America Stupid. Joining him is Andy Crouch, a best-selling author, speaker, and musician whose works have shaped the way an entire generation understands culture, creativity, and the gospel. In addition to writing widely for Time, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and many other publications, his books include Culture Making, Playing God, Strong and Weak, The TechWise Family, My TechWise Life, which he co-authored with his daughter Amy, and his new and wonderful release, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. John and Andy, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you, Sherry. Really good to see you both. So let's just dive in. We're going to have a lot to cover in the next hour. John, I want to start with you and ask you both about sort of the metaphor and the diagnosis that you've just made. Mm -hmm. You've just published this really important article, essentially arguing that our social media platforms have transformed our core institutions and industries, destroyed our trust, rewired our ways of thinking, and left us in a place akin to Babel inhospitable to cooperation that's necessary for either happy lives or a healthy democracy. But of course, the last dozen years have brought lots of upheaval, geopolitical, political, cultural, and the like. So I'd like to ask you both about the metaphor itself, why you chose it, and why you believe that out of all of the changes that have been going on in the past generation, social media is really the root cause. Sure. Well, thanks so much, Sheree. And it's, it's great to be paired with Andy because, you know, I, I'll be focusing on how this, this change in technology changed things in the last 10 years very suddenly. But just in our prep call yesterday, uh, talking with Andy and getting to know his work, um, it's clear that a lot of what we're talking about here are trends that have been going on for more than 100 years, just part of modernity, part of modernizing, part of technology. So I'll start us off, but then I'm really looking forward to Andy really putting us in a bigger picture here. <clears throat> so my story is that I'm a, I'm a professor at NYU. I've been a professor since 1995 at the University of Virginia before that. And I love being a professor, I love teaching. And all of a sudden in 2014, this way wasn't there in 2012, in 2014, things got really weird. And some of our students started attacking us and, and, and you know, using technology to shame us. And, and we had to start walking on eggshells. And again, it was like so sudden. And then it became clear. So I, I wrote this article, The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff about that that was happening in colleges. And then a few years later, it was clear, no, it's not just colleges. It's all of Gen Z, even if they don't go to college. And it's, it's, it's our institutions as well. And I've been struggling for metaphors. I, I love metaphors. We need metaphors to think about anything complicated. So I played with all sorts of different metaphors <clears throat> to get at the polarization. But it was only when I reread the Babel story, I can't even remember how I, what brought me back to it. The key line is, God, you know, he doesn't just come down and knock over the tower like, oh, I'm angry at you. I'm going to destroy your tower. It's let us go down and confound their language so that they may not understand one another. And when I read that, I reread that two or three, like two years ago. I said, oh, my God. Yes, that's exactly what it is, because it's not just like we hate each other red blue. It's like everything is shattering within families, within colleges, within, you know, within companies in which people are generally even similar politically. 
So I, I really grabbed hold of the babble metaphor and just played around with it. And, and it really perfectly explained what it feels like. And then the question is, well, what caused it? Mm -hmm. And of course, technology, going back to cable TV and, and all sorts of things have, have led to the spread of fake news and more anger. But none of those technologies made us afraid of each other. This is what is new. And this is the key idea in my essay. It's an 8,000 word essay, but I can tell you what the central idea is. It's structural stupidity. We didn't, we didn't get stupid as individuals. We got stupid in groups like universities or, or newspapers where our job is to put difference against each other within norms of civility. We, we debate, we argue, and then we come up with truth. But that can't happen if we're literally afraid of dissenting. And, and in 2012, you could dissent. In 2012, you could say, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. The data doesn't support your hypothesis. But suddenly, in 2014, 2015, if you challenge certain received notions, you're going to be destroyed socially and, and, out, and become an outcast. And once we silence ourselves, then as a group, we get stupid. So that's what I think has happened to us. Not everywhere in society, but in most of our institutions, especially those that try to create knowledge. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, Andy, as Jonathan was saying, a lot of his articles really kind of uh, focus on what's happening to us as a people. Uh, your book seems to focus a lot more on what is happening to us as persons uh, and how technologies essentially distort uh, who we are as a person. And you've argued that in many ways, the central crisis of personhood in our time uh, is loneliness and that we've lost some of the ways of becoming fully human, being known and being loved. And so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you believe that our devices have undermined our personhood and whether you believe uh, social media is primarily to blame or is there a larger problem going on? Hmm. Yeah, you know, as I was listening to you, John, I was thinking, I think part of the problem with social media is it's actually not very social compared to the institutions that it displaced. That hmm. is, it's very thin in what it offers us and asks of us as human beings in relationship with each other. And I think we're all seeing a very sudden kind of bankruptcy in our common shared life. There's this very, very oft quoted line from Hemingway, uh, how did you go bankrupt gradually and then suddenly? <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about the gradually part, like what was gradually happening in the history of technology that, that made us uh, so willing to accept a definition of relationship and sociality, sociability that could be so thin. And I would trace it, Cherie, to a set of decisions we made when we really began to understand, uh, understand how the world worked through the discoveries of modern science. And we started to put those to work. We thought for the benefit of human beings, the dream of the enlightenment was this would relieve the human estate. That was Bacon's kind of phrase that this would be so much better for people if we could just leverage what we know about the natural world. And in certain ways, it has been better for people, but two things happened. And there's a guy named Howard Hodson, who's an intellectual historian at Oxford, who says, we, we decided to turn our attention to the maximization of profit and the minimization of effort. I think both of these are very, very striking, the maximization of profit. So the reality is that a lot of technology is developed not with primarily in view what's best for human beings as persons in relationship with one another, but what maximizes profit for certain actors and the people who deploy the technology. But the other really interesting thing, and I don't even think this necessarily had to go along with uh, kind of the demands of capital, or in my book, I call it mammon, the demands of mammon, is the minimization of effort. And mm -hmm. I trace this back to the dream of doing magic, 
that we've we've had this dream in different forms for all of human history. In the West, it particularly comes alongside science in the form of alchemy, the dream that if we just figured out enough about the world, we'd be able, be able to do kind of wondrous things. But I, I think of magic as effortless power. <laughs> and part of what all these layers of technology have given us as human beings, up to and including kind of our, our social lives, is a kind of effortless power. And you know, you asked, what effect does this have on us as persons? The problem is most of what really develops us as healthy human beings involves effort. Uh, it involves a kind of certain kinds of discipline, certain kinds of patience, certain kinds of vulnerability. And we have had this dream for a hundred plus years now of eliminating vulnerability, eliminating effort, things that would operate on their own without requiring much skill, and all that, I think, added up to the conditions that social media was just ripe to, in a way, exploit and distort. Ultimately, the most important thing about us, which is how do we actually do life together as human beings? Yeah. So that's how I see the maybe the bigger frame. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sherry, if I can just jump in here. This is perfect. This is just what I was hoping to get from this conversation. Because before I started working on this project, the, the biggest and best idea I'd encountered in the previous five years was the notion of anti-fragility. The notion that yeah, yeah. we are that you know we're not humans, especially children, are not fragile. They're anti-fragile, which means they need challenge, setback, shocks, yes. even some suffering. And if you protect your kid from challenge, setbacks, shock, and suffering, you're going to have a child with a weak who, who's weak, as, just as if you protect your child from all bacteria and all germs. The immune system can't develop. And so, so this is fascinating, Andy, because it's like our technology was giving us this philosophy of let's all think how we can help people do more with less effort. And in the same way, we've been doing this with our kids. How can we help wow. our kids like do more homework or achieve more, but we, with no suffering, we don't want them to suffer. And wow. so, you know, the subtitle of my book with Greg Lukianoff is how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And boy, did we do that. And how interesting to link our child rearing philosophy to our technological philosophy. Yeah, completely, completely. And, and I, I would just add, I think when you don't have those developmental experiences, the self you bring into the world, into, including into social media, is such a thin self. You know, this is the problem with yeah. dreaming of connecting people, which was, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's guy mission statement for a long time. Very bad idea if the persons you connect have not been formed as persons. Yes. And I think that's part of what we're all kind yeah. of sensing and experiencing. Yeah. Now. That is such a good phrase. What you, the self you bring into the world is a thin self, but I would say a fragile self because yeah. that's exactly what happened in 2014 the students wow. the students wow. in college in 2012 were all millennials there was no gen z gen z begins with birth year 1996 or 97 depending how you count it it was the students who came in in 2013 2014 they were like nothing we'd ever seen and the proof of this is that if you look at the at the capacity of our mental health centers all over the country it doesn't matter where rural urban right around 2013 2014 it starts going up and by 2015 you're seeing articles how we're all flooded. We can't hire therapists fast enough. The number who required mental health services had more than doubled in just a few years. So something about kids born in, 20, in 1996 and later, they didn't, we didn't give them a chance to develop. And now I realize I've been saying we parents. Now it's like we parents and our techno, techno mm-hmm. bubble around uh, them. Yeah. Because what's new about Gen Z is that they're the only ones, the first ones ever to get into this techno bubble in middle school. And yes. there's actually a brand new study just out a month ago found that when you look at w- how harmful social media, how much it's related, time on social media is related to bad mental health. And the answer is 
for girls, it's especially bad from ages 11 to 13, which is when they're going through puberty. And for boys, it's 14, 15, and they go through puberty a little bit later. So it's, it's that vulnerable period. So the millennials, they didn't get Facebook and they didn't get sucked in until they were in college or later. But Gen Z, they got it in middle school because all you have to do is lie. You just say, oh, you know, I'm only 10. Oh, yeah, sure. I was born in, you know, in 1807. I'm old enough. You know, you can say whatever you want. They don't check. So that's, yeah, that's, I think, what happened. These, they've developed these, they bring into the world a fragile self. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about that, because that's, there's a certain irony in that, in that in seeking basically ease protection from suffering, we've actually exposed to children to far more harm, you know, quite ironically. And John, just, just Wednesday, I believe you testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee and you detailed uh, just some of the really shocking harms, particularly to teenagers and particularly, as you were saying, to teenage girls. Why is it that our devices are making us so anxious mm-hmm. and depressed. Yeah. What's so, the call? yeah. So think about, you know, like we're omnivores, we need to eat a varied diet. In the same way, our, we're, our, we're a very flexible species. You know, if you're a koala bear, you don't need much of a childhood. You're just going to sit in a tree and eat eucalyptus leaves. That's all you need to learn. But if you're a human, you need to practice for adulthood. You need to play and play and play. Tens of thousands of interactions, and they have to have conflict in which they resolve it themselves. And they have to come up, decide what are we going to do today? Should we play this game or that? No, it's like you have to work together, have a lot of conflict, learn to resolve it. In order to develop social skills, you have to do that unsupervised. The whole point of attachment theory is that we stay close to our attachment figure when we're afraid, but that we don't learn anything there. We then can go out into the world. That's where all the learning takes place, not around your mom. The learning takes place when you leave and you go out and engage in the world and you, you do pretend hunting, pretend fighting, play, whatever it is. So this is normal human childhood. And, you know, Andy, I don't know how old, how old you are, but I'm sure all three of us, when we, I know this because I've asked this all over the country, around age six, seven or eight, that's when American kids went out to play without adult supervision. And this was during the crime wave. I think the three of us grew up during the great crime wave of the 70s and 80s. Well, the crime wave recedes in the 90s, but we freak out about child abduction. And we say, you can't go out because you'll be abducted, which is ridiculous. It doesn't, it it almost never happens. It's also Um, when the baby on board signs appear. Yes, that's right. That's right. And and it's in part because we have fewer kids, but we invest Uh, more in them because college is getting more competitive for a lot of reasons. We, we switch over into what's called concerted cultivation parenting. I am going to shepherd you through childhood, which means you will never get a chance to learn anything because I'm always there for you. And uh, just to add one more metaphor, so this is what kids need. They need lots of unsupervised experience of a great variety. And what we did to them around 2010 is we put them all on experience blockers. So an experience blocker is a thing that once you have it, you don't have any other experience. And I've got one right here. So this is an experience blocker. It is a kind of experience, but it knocks out all other kinds of experience. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like we said to kids, okay, you can sit in this tree and you can eat eucalyptus leaves and that's all, nothing else. And then we're surprised that they develop scurvy and and all kinds of other diseases because they're not having a normal human childhood. Okay, I just mixed way too many metaphors in there. But that's what happened in 2010 because the kids didn't have cell phones. They didn't have smartphones in 2008. You know, iPhone comes out in 2007. It's expensive. But by 2012, they mostly do. So that was the transition period. Can I just build on that briefly, Sheree, to say, 
I think one thing that distinguishes us from the koalas is not just, you know, diet or, or the fur, activity yeah. and fur, but I was sort of casting about as I worked on this new book, you know, what is the essence of being a person? And, and for mm. me as a, a Christian, it's hard to do better than what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. And of course, this is just Jesus channeling the Jewish tradition and the Shema Yisrael from the Hebrew Bible. And I was struck that that fourfold, the way Jesus presents it's fourfold in the Hebrew Bible, it's only three. Jesus adds mind for some reason, hmm. heart, soul, mind, strength. I think that this is a, a beautiful kind of specification of what it is to be a person. A person is a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex designed for love. Hmm. And one of the really damaging things about our technology is very little of our technology develops all four of mm. those qualities, the kind of emotional capacity of human beings, our mental capacity, our bodily capacity. It, you know, right. th this eucalyptus tree we're sitting in does not require us to move very much. It's, it's yeah. taking us away from the three-dimensional world that the, those six to eight-year-olds played in so naturally. And then soul, you know, whatever that is, I think it's something about depth of self that only is discovered in communion with other selves and perhaps with the divine. And technology is not designed by and large, it could be, but in fact, it just doesn't attend to this multidimensional no. human experience. It, it, it really constrains us. I, lo I love that exp experience blocker uh, metaphor, but John, uh, it's affecting all of us, I would say, but it's no surprise that it affects adolescents the most vividly because they're the ones who are on the fastest growth curve and yeah. the most vulnerable in a way. Yeah. So there's, there's those of us who are hanging on eucalyptus trees, uh, munching away. And then there's also those, just to pick up on another metaphor, John, that you talked about running around with dart guns. There have been those who have, well, some of us are just, you know, yeah. half anesthetized, comfortably numb. Other folks have, uh, in, to incredible degrees, monetized and weaponized social media to the point where, John, you have argued that we are on a path that is not compatible with sustaining democracy, that mm -hmm. there's actually a, a clear, present and urgent danger. Yes. And I would love to ask you a little bit more about the danger that you see mm -hmm. and what this is doing to us like as a people and as citizens. Yeah. Uh, not just as uh, distorted eucalyptus munching people. Yeah. yeah. So the dart gun metaphor is this. Mark Zuckerberg often says, how could it be wrong to give more people more voice? And this was the, you know, there was an era of techno-utopianism when we really thought in the 90s and early 2000s that, that the internet and then social media specifically are going to be incredible gifts to democracy, give everyone a voice, empower everyone, the Arab Spring, you know, how could a dictator stand up to the, the people empowered? And it, you know, it looks like he couldn't. It turns out, though, that when everyone got a voice, and especially now Twitter is the worst here because Twitter is, is, is designed so that there will be no context, no mercy, no truth, just, you know, just little things. And it's mostly complaining. It's mostly negative. You know, Facebook, a lot of good stuff happens on Facebook. You know, most of what's on Facebook is very nice. But of course, you know, but there's so much of it that a lot of it ends up being very powerful. It, it shifts elections, does all sorts of things. Anyway, the point is that uh, it makes it super easy for anyone to complain about anyone, to slander anyone, to call them names. And what we care about most, uh, speaking as a social psychologist, what we care about most is our reputation. That's what people are just desperate for. Uh, and children, teenagers, my God, they're just beginning to explore this. They're, so it's really painful for them if someone calls them a name. Mm. So the metaphor that I used was, it's not that it gave everyone a voice. It's like it gave everyone a dart gun where you can shoot anyone at any time with no accountability. You can do it anonymously. And 
most of us don't want to shoot anyone. So most of us don't do it. But who does? Four groups, four groups. The far right, the far left, trolls, which are mostly men, but they're people who just enjoy harassing and being cruel. They, they get kicks out of it. And then Russian agents. The Russians really did master it and cause a lot of, they really amplified our strife beginning in 2013, 2014 when they activated their, their networks. Mm-hmm. So these four groups and the other 80% of us are like, just we, we just don't want to get shot. It's really painful to be slandered and slimed and, and, and humiliated online. So what I found after I published the article, you know, this is, you know, I, I say some, I, I really put some blame on what the left is doing, what the right is doing. And I expected to have a lot of people, you know, yelling and screaming at me and calling me names. Zero. Nobody is criticizing me. What's happening is everyone is so exhausted. Everyone's exhausted. And especially anybody who runs anything, they've been shot thousands of times. They are so exhausted. And anybody who's a moderate, if you're center left, center right, you're so exhausted and you're just, you just keep your head down. So even though when I wrote the article, I was very pessimistic about our future as a country, because if we don't speak up, then if it's, if it's only the extremists and the trolls who are speaking, then our institutions get structurally stupid and without good democratic and epistemic institutions, that is things that generate knowledge, you, you, we can't have a democracy. You know, Latin America, other places have had a lot of trouble having democracy without strong institutions. In America, we got good British institutions and then we improved them. So that was our secret in the 20th, 19th and 20th, especially 20th century, we had good institutions, but now our institutions are decaying. People are losing trust in them in part because they're becoming less effective. So on our present course, I do believe that we will fail as a nation. If we don't change things, I believe we are on a track. You can't have a large, diverse, secular democracy, nothing holding us together if we don't trust each other or have good institutions. Of course, if you have a broadly religious public, especially if you share religion, that really binds people together. Mm -hmm. But social media has dissolved the mortar of society. Everything is coming apart. Americans as a religious people are coming apart. As you well know, mainline Protestant denominations are plummeting and spiritual but not religious is the, is the thing that's rising among our young people. So yes, I'm very, very concerned, but the, the, the good news is just that most Americans are really reasonable, decent people who, want, who love this country and want to live together. So we just have to figure out how do we undo the damage of these technologies so that we get better, well, we have better technologies or better use of technology. And for that, I think we should turn to Andy Crouch. <laughs> Andy, how do we do that? You know, actually, Andy, I want to hear your answer to that. Before we do that, though, I want to ask you another question, which is essentially, why are we doing this to ourselves? You know, in that we we know that there's a lot of data supporting the fact that when we basically hand a, an iPhone or whatever to a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old girl, the chances are quite high uh, that they will suffer from anxiety or depression, that they'll be harassed and bullied. When we log on, we rarely log off feeling better about things. We are much more likely to leave feeling addled, distracted, upset, or, or what have you. And some of us are, are chomping eucalyptus and others are shooting darts into you know, reasonable leaders trying to keep it all together. At one point in your book, you said that we have lost our souls without even gaining the world. So why, why are we torturing ourselves by essentially playing into the games as it's currently structured and not asking for more? Wow. So I think there's probably a couple of layers. I mean, there's this very interesting uh, 
work, I believe the neuroscientist who did it, who won the Groover Prize for it is Wolfgang Schultz, if I'm not misremembering his name, on how addictive patterns, especially drugs, but also patterns hijack our learning system so that we never actually learn that something doesn't produce a reward. We know with like strictly addictive things, any addict knows the next hit is not going to be that great. Uh, but, but what actually happens at neurological levels is, is that system that's meant to help you learn just is interrupted and you never actually learn. So part of it is we, we just forget at a kind of brain body level that it's not going to be better this time. And there are these kind of little micro rewards that are sort of the compensations for a, a vulnerable life. Mm-hmm. I mean, another layer of it, honestly, is we, we dream of life being easier. The, the reason parents give their kids cell phones is basically to make life easier. It, it's not to expose their kids to a maelstrom of shame and regret and you know, uh, thinned out relationships, it's to find out when soccer practices, you know, to be totally honest. And it's this, and then I would also say the first time, the first time kids get a glowing rectangle put in front of them is almost always quite early in life now. It's because they're in distress. They're upset because they're having to sit on a plane or sit in the backseat of a car. Mm. And, oh, here, I'll hand you this thing. This thing will make your life easier. And really what we mean is it'll make the parent's life easier. It relieves the parents' distress as well as the child's. And that starts to train us that, that maybe this thing will relieve distress. So I, my, I think, Sheree, my fundamental answer to that is being human is vulnerable. Being human in the world that we were actually given is vulnerable. By, by the way, I, I can't help resist like pushing on your metaphor a little bit, John. Babel is understood in the in the arc of Genesis as, as a mistaken project from the beginning. They mm. use their technology mm. to do something they're not meant to do, which is settle down in the plane of Shinar, I think it's mm. called. And rather than continue to fulfill, you know, God instructs his image bearers to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? So they're supposed to be spreading out. They decide, actually, that sounds kind of vulnerable. What if we just collect? <laughs> what mm-hmm. if we consolidate power, use our technology to kind of shore up our power? In a way, what, what humanity is presenting as, as doing in that story is avoiding the vulnerability of the kind of vastness of the world that they've been entrusted with by the creator. And I think at an individual level, this is also what happens to us, that we assess the vulnerability that would be involved in relating to our spouse, in stepping out our door and relating to our neighbor, in really wrestling with a complex political issue. And there are these affordances and devices available at every moment that we can turn to that will relieve that distress, that will give us some micro rewards, even though we kind of know it's not going to work. So the Mm. very, very deep kind of question is how do we create the environments where we can be properly vulnerable again, which we'll only do if we feel sufficiently loved (laughs) that we can risk it. And I, I think at a, starting at a very small level, but scaling all the way up to the kinds of institutions that used to make people feel you can engage in the vulnerability of not being sure what you think, of, of disagreeing with someone, of raising some contrary evidence. All these things that we used to be able to do, those are kind of collapsing and they've been replaced by these systems that give us momentary relief from it, but, but also just undermine that uh, anti-fragility that we were all meant to develop, I think. Yeah. And John, I want to pick up on your question, but ask you that. What then do we do? And yeah, because it's not fair to make me answer it. (laughs) Come on, you're the big picture guy. I'm the medium picture guy. You're talking about the soul. I'm just talking about the brain. 
Uh, you've mentioned that, I mean, not only are we in a pivotal time, but in many ways it is likely to get worse because we are right on the cusp of AI essentially being able to enable highly believable misinformation. So you know, from a structural standpoint, from you know, a democratic point of view, what structures can we put in place and what institutions can we harden to protect democracy? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, yeah, so at the end of this long, very pessimistic piece, I, I said there's three there's three buckets of reforms. So let's call them three reform imperatives, three things we have to do. And I may be wrong about the particulars, but, but I think these are three things we have to do. One is we have to harden our democratic and epistemic institutions so they can continue to function, even if we have more polarization. Odds are we're gonna be more polarized, more hateful in five years than we are now. There's no sign of a turnaround coming anytime soon. Odds are there's gonna be more political violence as there was say in the 1960s and 70s and, and in other periods. So how can we function even when there's even things are worse than they are today? And there are a lot of smart people that have been suggesting reforms, the biggest single one being open primaries. And so these are things any state, Alaska's done it, a few states mm -hmm. have done it. If you have closed party primaries, then your, your Congress people, they don't care about the people in their state because they don't matter. All that matters is the 10% that vote in their party primary. So that makes them much more extreme. Congress people are mostly reasonable people who go to Washington to make things better, but they, I've talked to many of them, they're so frustrated because to survive, they have to do things that they know are bad for the country. So let's help them out. Every state, please start an initiative, Get do what Alaska did, open primary followed by something like, a, like final five voting, final four voting, approval voting, there are a variety of mechanisms, but the key is that everybody runs together in the initial primary, and that means more reasonable people will, will, will join that initial primary. So that's the most important one. A lot of other pro-democracy reforms, uh, redistricting, it shouldn't be a partisan process, it shouldn't be gerrymandered, things like that. The second uh, reform imperative is we have to make social media less toxic to democracy, which means have to make it, so everyone's focused on content moderation. Oh my God, Elon Musk is going to do less content moderation if you're on the left or yay, he's going to, I'm sorry, other way around. He's going to do, the left is freaked out that he'll do less and the right is celebrating that uh, he'll do less. That's it. So, but that's not where the action is. The content moderation is not that important. You have to have some, otherwise everything is pornography and Nazis. So he's going to find, you have to have some content moderation, but that's so trivial compared to the, what really matters, which is the dynamics. What messed us up isn't that people post crazy stuff. It's that after 2009, any crazy stuff can get up to millions of people within a day. That's what's messing us up. It's the dynamics, the viral dynamics, and the fact that any jerk or Russian agent can open a thousand accounts in a day and just use them to harass people. There's no, there's no stop. There's no reason they can't. And so Elon Musk has actually said that he at least will crack down on bots. I think we need to go a little further, have identity authentication. You have to prove that you're a real person in a particular country and you're old enough to use the platform. And this is crucial. We have to have age, age verification. We have to, because there is no way to keep our children out of everything, including pornography, if we don't have age authentication. Uh, and that's the third bucket is we have to now, we have to, because look, my God, if, the, if everyone born after 1996 is more fragile and unable to deal with competing opinions, we can't have a democracy. And of course, these are our own children we're talking about. So we have to get them out playing and off of the, keep them off of the phones and especially social media until after puberty. Now, I'm not saying you can't have an iPhone until you're 16, but you, you shouldn't be on any platform where you get rated until you're 16. And so I would urge everybody mm. here, if you're listening, mm. you have kids, go to letgrow.org. It's a nonprofit I co-founded with Lenore Skenazy because it's hard for you to just take your kid out because then they're excluded, they're isolated. It's a social trap that we're all in. The platforms put us in this trap. 
So Let Grow is about let's change state laws so that parents can actually allow their kids to play in a park without worrying about getting arrested for child neglect. And let's find other free range parents so that our kids can play together, which is what they really want to do anyway. So we, it's hard to solve this on your own. There's a lot you can do. But if you combine with others in your neighborhood or your friends or your kids' friends' parents, then you're very powerful. So that's, I think, the way out for parents. Yeah. Wow, Andy, let me sense. ask you the same question in a slightly different way, which is, you know, John opened his article with a metaphor about Babel. And you end your book with a very different architectural metaphor, and that is of a canopy. Uh, a canopy of trust spread to essentially cultivate being known, being loved, and becoming fully human. So how can we build canopies of trust in the rubble of Babel? You know, the, the verb that, that we were drawn to a moment ago was to how do we harden some things? How do we mm. kind of reinforce some institutions? I do see the need for that. In a way, this there's another side, which is how do we soften mm. our closest relationships? So I was very struck in the past few years thinking about the, that all, all risk has to play, take place in, in an environment of trust. And, mm-hmm. and I, I started to think of it as like, a, at first I thought it was an umbrella, like you and I, even for this conversation, mm-hmm. we made a, a set of explicit and implicit promises to listen to one another, to show up for an hour, to, to mm-hmm. be prepared, to not, not be multitasking, at least I'm not, <laughs> to like really be present. And it's, and, and there's a, there's an expectation of a certain regard for one another, a certain attention to one another, all these things that in some ways are so obvious, but not actually to be taken for granted in our public world. And that creates this little umbrella under which a really fruitful conversation can happen. Cause I can trust, not that we'll agree about everything or have the same perspective on everything, but a, a certain kind of trust between us. And, and then I thought about how, in a way, our, all of human life takes under place under these kind of, uh, cascade of umbrellas because it's not just the three of us john teaches a university a university has been at least a kind of umbrella of trust for a certain kind of pursuit of knowledge uh sure you work in the nonprofit. the structure of the modern nonprofit is a kind of umbrella of trust of donors and implementers and so forth and that goes all the way up to the canopies of trust of whole nations and i and i turn to the metaphor of canopy first because of this uh very influential book in in sociology of religion called the sacred canopy by peter berger who argued that actually human beings, perhaps to survive and thrive, have to ultimately feel that when they look up at the heavens, they experience a kind of sacred canopy, that there is some way to trust mm-hmm. what's going on in this seemingly wild and chaotic world. And then I realized there's this very interesting detail about Jewish weddings, which is that they take place under a canopy, the chuppah, right? Which interestingly has to be out doors. You can't get married, if I understand uh, accurately, you can't get married inside, or if you get married in a Jewish wedding hall, there's an open space, open to the sky, but with a canopy over the couple. And I think that's such a powerful metaphor that we, we have to step out into the wildness of creation under the huge sky, but then we create this canopy of trust where two people initially, and then perhaps the children they beget and so forth, can shelter. It seems to me the basic work of repair for the next, uh, for the rest of my lifetime, certainly for, probably for several generations, because I think these canopies have been eroded in all kinds of ways by modernity, is for us to rebuild at many different scales, but certainly starting with our closest relationships, the canopies of trust where human beings do not go into the world fundamentally fearful, fundamentally ashamed, uh, fundamentally o- on edge 
uh, but actually go into the world sensing there is room to be human here. That's a really tall order. In the book, I talk some about how I think that's been done through the last 2000 years by the Christian movement, but it's the task of our time. That's fantastic. Wow. If, if I could just comment on that very briefly. So I, I'm reformed Jewish. You know, we weddings occur indoors in hotel rooms uh, with okay. under a canopy. Sorry, sorry. But, but you're, no, no, you're probably you're probably right that for the Orthodox, there probably is a rule that you have to be outdoors. I don't know. But I just want to point out again, the incredibly close fit with what you just said with attachment theory. That is oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when you feel that you have a secure base, that there is you're not going to get yes. slaughtered. Like you actually, OK, God is looking out for me then I can venture out. But when I'm afraid, when I, there's nobody protecting me, then I'm not going to take chances. And so, yes, that is, that is beautiful. We've lost that canopy of trust. And that is why we're all getting, we're getting stupid. Our kids are getting fragile. It, 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 yes, I love it. I love it. Andy and John, this has been uh, really rich as well as a delight. I'd love to give you the last word. So John, maybe we can start with you. Oh, sure. Well, thanks, Sherry. Um, so my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, and it was about I collected uh, psychological statements from all the wisdom traditions I could find and it analyzed them to see whether they're still true. And what I discovered is that the ancients were not smarter than us, but what we get from the ancients was filtered through 50 generations. So it's really, really good concentrated wisdom. And part of the problem with Babel is we're cut off from that. We're drowning in trivia that was created yesterday. And what I found, the greatest, the richest sources of wisdom were the Judeo-Christian tradition, the, the Bible, the Buddhist tradition, and the Stoic tradition. Those three turn out to be just the richest in psychological insights. So I just, I just identified two Stoic quotations. It's as though they knew what social media was, and they were warning us not to do it. So here they are. Epictetus says, if your body was turned over to just anyone, you would doubtless take exception. Why aren't you ashamed that you've made your mind vulnerable to anyone who happens to criticize you so that it automatically becomes confused and upset? I mean, that's Twitter. He said, don't go on Twitter. And then this is Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius said, the things you think about determine the quality of your mind. Your soul takes on the color of your thoughts. So avoid degrading things. Avoid things that lower you. Focus, expose yourself to things that elevate you, like the Trinity Forum, for example. Yes, indeed. Thank you, John. Andy. So interesting you put it that way, John, because I, I was thinking about what I would say, and, and I wanted to quote the great wisdom tradition of the Hebrew Bible and the most important line in the whole thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, Jesus would say, and all your strength. And then the, it goes on this way, and I think this is significant for us. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home, when you are away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That ultimately, it comes down to what's written on our heads, our hands, the gates of our homes, the life we're living with our children and our neighbors in the world. Amen. Andy and John, thank you so much. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you, Shri. Thank you, Andy. Really, really fun. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events. 